Good to see everybody this morning. Uh, it uh, has uh, um, been an interesting week in many ways. Uh, we've had some uh, hot weather, we've had some rain, and it's supposed to be really hot today. So if you have outdoor plans, um, I hope you dress cool. I guess we're going to be pushing 100 degrees. And um, um, in case you're wondering, this is a fishing shirt. Okay. But I want to be clear, I do not fish. I mean, I, I have fish, but I am not a fisherman. I just like wearing the fishing shirts, whatever. So, um, but enough about fishing this morning. Uh, I'm going to tax uh, some of your brains this morning. I'm going to see if by chance you might remember this. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Oh, I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. Oh, to know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. You guys remember that, some of you? 1974. And does anybody know the name of the guy that wrote and sang that song, made it popular the first time? Mac Davis. Mac Davis. It, uh, or Willie Nelson did a remake of it as well, but it's a, it's a humorous song. Um, you really didn't want me to sing the rest of it, but the lyrics uh, to the rest of the song are, are quite humorous. And I think it's humorous because it hits perhaps a little bit too close to home for some of us anyway. Um, I think that the lyrics reflect the spirit of the age in which we live. And um, the reality is, is that humility is not a character trait that is much sought after in our world today. And um, if there was ever a time, however, where it is needed, it's today. And I would say that for those who would follow Jesus who are serious about following him, and who are interested in having and living a blessed life, it's an absolute necessity. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that I think is very familiar to you. It's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And there are several lessons in the text this morning that we're going to be looking at, but perhaps none more important than this, that believers must pattern their lives after Jesus and humbly serve one another. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word to us. And um, Lord, as we uh, look um, at, uh, at chapter 13 of John's gospel, uh, Lord, we know we are now approaching quickly uh, the end of your life on this earth. And Father, you have much to teach us, for you had much to teach the disciples. And so I pray that you would just give us open ears, that we would be um, receptive to what you have to say. And Lord, that we would find ways in which to apply these truths to our lives for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and he was proclaimed king by the people. On Monday, 
he went to the temple and he overturned the, the tables there uh, in the temple. On Tuesday, they sought, the, the religious leaders sought to entrap Jesus so that they might arrest him. We don't know what happened on Wednesday. Perhaps it was a, a day of rest. But on Thursday, Jesus now goes to the upper room with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. In John chapter 13, verse 1, we have a, tra- tra- a transitional statement. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that's a, it's, it's a powerful verse. Like I said, it, it, it's a transitional sentence of sorts, but it communicates clearly and I think um, deeply the love that Jesus had for his disciples. And what we're going to see here is in the verses that follow that, that Jesus has some last-minute instructions for them. Because he loves them so much, this is what's on his heart. And he provides his disciples and us an example in which to follow. So let's continue reading there in verse 2. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So again, we see here uh, Jesus referring to the hour of his death. And the time was near for him to depart this world. This is Thursday. A lot of things are going to happen this night and into the next. Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. And Jesus knew who it was. It didn't come as a surprise to Jesus. He knew from the very beginning. And when you think about it, this is a very sobering thought. I know we've talked about it, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my, my admonition was, don't be a Judas. But it's possible that, that somebody could be in a setting like this on a weekly basis and be like Judas Because here was Judas, he was in the presence of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. And he was surrounded with people who loved Jesus, yet he did not know Jesus. You you see the, the lesson here for us? The disciples didn't know, had no clue, Jesus knew. But here was a man who, who ministered with Jesus, traveled with Jesus three years, seven days a week for three years. And yet Jesus knew that he would betray him. And even more frightening than that is the thought that if, if you don't know Christ, if you don't truly know him, then it's open season on your life. 
Do you realize that? We, we open ourselves up to the attacks of the enemy. We, we, are, we are fair game for the evil within and the evil without. Judas was just a pawn. Satan had entered him. He had led him. He put it into his heart to betray Jesus. You see, those who are unsaved have no breastplate of righteousness. They have no shield of faith in which to quench the fiery darts of the evil one. They have no helmet of salvation. They're defenseless against the enemy. The person who plays church is in a dangerous position. They are in a position of being completely overwhelmed by the evil one. So, I can't stress enough the importance of being born again, of being sure that you belong to Christ. And don't kid yourself, just quoting verses isn't, isn't enough. I mean, most of us can quote lots of scripture. But what is our life saying about what we truly believe? Do, do we truly love Christ? Are we really following hard after him? Or are we just going through the motions? Are we just playing church? Now keep in mind, Jesus had been hailed as king as he rode into Jerusalem, but here he is now in someone else's home, the king of the Jews, and nobody has offered to wash his feet. Or for that matter, the feet of the disciples. And apparently he didn't cross the mind of the disciples to do it either. You know, in our home, we ask our guests uh, many times uh, to take their shoes off at the door. And you go, well, why do you do that? Well, because the soles of shoes are dirty. And we like to save money on carpet cleaning and um, cans of Lysol. The, the, the reality is shoes carry dirt and grass and poop and, and grease and mud and oil and germs. And it's, it's just, it's a sanitary thing for us, but it's not so much for us. It's, we have so many people coming into our house. We want the house to look good, smell good, and, and, and be a healthy environment for everybody who comes through. But, but, but imagine now you're living in Jesus' day where everybody walks around barefoot or in open sandals, and they walk, they walk on, on, on unpaved roads covered in dirt or mud and garbage and animal waste. There, there was no escaping it. You couldn't get away from it. It was just an everyday part of life. So washing someone's feet was not just a nice thing to do. It was a sanitary thing to do. And it also cut down on the smell I mean, you have to understand, you know, when they ate their meals, they, they weren't sitting at a, at a dining room table with nice chairs, you know. They reclined, okay? So your head was at about the same height as somebody else's feet. It was a common courtesy to have someone wash your feet when you entered into someone else's home. Guests of honor would often have their feet washed by slaves or household servants, 
Uh, but even here, some rabbis taught that it was even beneath the, the doing of a Jewish slave. They, they thought it was so demeaning, so degrading in that culture that they didn't even think their slaves ought to be doing it. And today in the Middle East, there is still a contempt for feet. Anybody who spent any time there realizes that. And that's what makes this story so incredible. Jesus took on the role of a slave and he washed the dirty, sweaty, smelly feet of his disciples. But what prompted Jesus to do this in the middle of the meal? Doesn't happen before the meal. It doesn't happen when they enter the house. It happens during the meal. Now, Luke describes this same night, but he doesn't include the washing of the disciples' feet. He mentions something that John doesn't. So let me read from Luke chapter 22, verse 21 through 27. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so among you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest. The leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So here we see, according to Luke, that Jesus predicted that one of his disciples would betray him. And so the disciples began questioning each other, trying to figure out who it was. They're playing detective, trying to figure out who it was that Jesus was referring to. It was you, it was you, it's not me. It's you. you know, you can just kind of picture what was going on here. But from there, it progressed in the other direction. So they're trying to find out who's the traitor. And then somehow trying to figure out who was the low life scumbag. They thought, well, who's the greatest among us? Me. I am. No, I am. No, I mean, you, this is incredible, right? One day before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. This, this just blows my mind here. And, and we see that this is not something new. This has happened time and time again in the Gospels. And I don't think I got them all down, but Matthew 18, Mark 9, Luke 9, Matthew 20. This is something that has been going on in Jesus' ministry from the beginning. 
And in Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John came to Jesus, knelt at his feet, pleading that her two sons would be able to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand when he enters his kingdom. Now, I, you know, if, if I was James or John, I would have been embarrassed at that. I, I don't see that they were. In, in fact, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 24, uh, when the other disciples heard it, it says when, when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. And then Jesus had to call them to himself. It says, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus told them this repeatedly. And it never sunk in. And many of us have, have heard this story. But we too can be like the disciples. We can think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We may think we are more knowledgeable, more spiritual, more holy than those around us. We may even have a prideful, unteachable spirit. We may be quick to judge others and even faster to defend ourselves. I love with Epictetus, uh, the Greek Stoic uh, philosopher said, he said, if anyone tells you that a certain person speaks ill of you, do not make excuses about what is said of you, but answer he was ignorant of my other faults, else he would have not mentioned these alone. <laughs> Takes great humility to say something like that and, and mean it. Like Jesus' disciples, we may find that it's easier to grow in knowledge than it is to grow in love and grace. And you have to wonder after all of these incidents where Jesus catches the disciples talking about who's the greatest, having a mother come at his feet and kneel down and ask. For, you have to wonder if, if now, just hours before his life is ended, that he just has enough. He just, he, he's, I'm done with the bickering. This has got to stop now. And, and the reason why you have to wonder that is because he got up from reclining at the table. He stripped down to his loincloth. He grabbed a towel, poured some water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. I mean, can you imagine the look on their faces? And what they were whispering to one another? I, I'm, what's he doing? What's he doing? Is he going to wash our feet? I, I, I think they must have been in shock. In fact, I, I think we see a little bit of that when we look here at chapter, excuse me, verse 6. 
because he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Other translations said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands in my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. See, Peter objects strongly. Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus responds, if, if I don't wash you, you have no share. You have no part with me. Jesus is telling Peter that if, if he doesn't wash his feet, he can have no fellowship with Jesus. He can have no partnership with Jesus. And Peter loves Jesus. And the thought of that is terrifying to him. And that's why he responds the way that he does. Upon hearing Jesus' words, he says, Lord, then give me a bath. I, I Wash me head to toe. That's how much Peter loved the Lord. But Jesus told him, you're already clean. You don't need a bath. You just need your feet washed. So that's an interesting, interesting series of events and words that are being shared between Peter and, and Jesus here. But what exactly do they mean? And, and I, I believe that what Jesus is getting at here is, is that when a person repents and receives Christ as Lord and Savior in, in, in his or her life, they are made clean. His blood that was to be shed on the cross is applied to their life and their sins have been washed away. Their sins, their past, their present, even the future sins they have yet to commit are covered by the blood of Christ. You see, our union with Christ is made possible by the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. But our communion with Jesus requires ongoing cleansing. Because sin hinders our walk with Christ. We need to be quick to confess it and to forsake it. If we are to have fellowship with Jesus, we must walk in the light as he is in the light. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Make, don't confuse this with salvation. We don't have to get saved all over again. I know that there are a lot of people, 
uh, you know, who feel, you know, I, I got saved when I was six, you know, and then I got saved again when I was eight, and then I got, yeah, I really got saved when I was 13, you know, when, and, and they're confused. They don't understand justification by faith. They don't realize that the moment you come to Christ in humble repentance and in faith, he invades your life with his spirit. His blood is applied to your life. You are made a child of God. But that doesn't mean you're not going to sin anymore. And he has given us the promise that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He doesn't go back to the cross and die all over again. We don't have to get saved all over again. We simply have to acknowledge what he knows is already true and go to him and allow him to apply the blood that was already shed to our lives to make us clean, to make us holy so that we can walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, I think the, the Old Testament priesthood actually gives us a, a wonderful picture of this. Warren Wearsby uh, kind of puts it better than I could, so I'm just going to read a paragraph um, from his commentary on, on John. He says, when the priest was consecrated, he was bathed all over, and that experience was never repeated. However, during his daily ministry, he became defiled. So it was necessary that he wash his hands and his feet at the brass laver in the courtyard. Only then could he enter the holy place and trim the lamps, eat the holy bread, or burn the incense. The Lord cleanses us through the blood of Christ that is his work on the cross and through the application of his word to our lives. The water of the word can keep our hearts and our minds clean so that we will avoid the pollutions of this world. And if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. You see, I love John 1, 1 John 1, 9. And I've shared this before. I, I love the fact that it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. It doesn't say that he is loving and merciful. It says he is faithful and just. He is faithful to his promises. And he is absolutely just in forgiving us because the payment for our sin was paid in full at the cross. So he's, he's not letting us off scot-free. Our debt has already been paid. Jesus not only revealed to his disciples the need here for ongoing cleansing, he also gave them an example to follow. Um, but we need to be clear here. Jesus was not giving them a lesson on proper foot washing etiquette. That's not what this example was about. Nor was Jesus instituting another ordinance like baptism or communion. You know, the, the holy sacrament of foot washing. Although there are some churches that regularly practice that. Here, Jesus gives them an object lesson on humble servitude 
to drive home what it means to be the greatest in his kingdom. He wants them to learn from him because he wants them to be like him. And Jesus wants us to learn from him too so that we might be like him. He is teaching them about godly servant leadership, which happens to be one of our core values as a church. That's how important this is. And the disciples, and and by extension, the elders of the church, are not to lord it over others, but rather they're to be examples to the flock, even as Jesus was an example to the disciples. They are in humility to serve those entrusted to their care. But the principle holds true for every believer. So what Jesus is saying here to his disciples, he's saying to us, to all of us, we must pattern our lives after Jesus and humbly serve one another. Look at verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus was the embodiment of a godly servant leader. And he's telling his disciples that this is how they are to live and to lead. It's not about power. It's not about authority. Jesus here is using the argument of the greater to the lesser. If their teacher and Lord stooped to wash their feet, then they too should humble themselves and wash one another's feet. Then Jesus asked them, do you understand? Do you understand what I have just done to you and for you? Do you? And if you do, good. You are blessed only if you do it. That's what Jesus says there. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough for us to know what we're supposed to do. We have to do it. Passages like this might inform our minds. It might stir our emotions. But we are not blessed until we obey. How badly do you want to be blessed? How badly do you want God's blessing in your life? I think maybe this is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, I think I have it up here. 
He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Washing the disciples' feet was an act of, of humble service, but it merely pointed to an even greater act, one that was to come in just a matter of hours. One that was absolutely necessary for us to be clean. You see, at our core, we are selfish, self-centered. We, we want to be our own gods. We're, we're not interested in serving others. We want to be served. We don't want to be last. We, we want to be first. And, and, and you see this everywhere. You, you hear it in the way people talk. You, you see it by the way people drive and shop, especially at Christmas. I mean, just the other day, uh, I, I read about a brawl in Disney World. You know, outside of uh, Mickey's Philharmonic. Apparently, some lady that was with a family forgot her phone or something, so she went back, you know, to grit. She left it someplace. She went to get it, and on her way back, another family wouldn't let her get back with her party. They blocked her way, wouldn't let her through. And then afterwards, an altercation occurred. I mean, you guys have been there, right? People, they, they don't want you cut in line. And, and you know how you feel when you see people cut in line. Last night, coming home from a concert uh, we were at, um, it, was, it, was a, it was a madhouse trying to get out. Everybody's in their cars, you know, and, and I mean, thousands, right, of thousands of cars all trying to go down one road. I mean, there were several times I had people in cars who I thought they were trying to get into our car with their car. I mean, just kind of, you know, kind of fighting their way to get there. And then I thought about my message this morning. <laughs> and I thought, I got to let some of these people go ahead of me. <laughs> it was hard. Because I wanted to be first. I wanted to get out. I wanted to get home. And I thought, you know, that, that's what we need. We need to think like that. We need to think, Lord, how, where can I demonstrate this type of humility? Where can I Look out for the interests of others and not just myself.
C.J. Mahaney, one of my favorite preachers, said this once. He said, to learn true humility, we need more than a redefinition of greatness. We need even more than Jesus' personal example of humble service. What we need is his death. And I believe that's true because we are sinners. And and because we're sinners, we need more than just a good example. It wouldn't have been sufficient for Jesus just to, to, to be a good example to us. Okay, now I know this is how I'm supposed to live. Well, how in the world am I supposed to do that? You can't, not in your own strength, not in your sinful nature. You don't need an example so much as you needed a sacrifice. You needed Jesus to die on the cross. I needed Jesus to die on the cross. We needed his blood to wash away our sins to make us clean. We, to be like Christ, we needed a new heart, a new spirit. We needed the power of God to make us who we could never be on our own and to give us the power to do what we would never do or want to do on our own. Jesus knew that we needed more than an example. That's why he went to the cross. He bled and died to cleanse us of our sin and to give us a new birth. So how should we respond? The Bible makes it clear that we first respond in repentance, turning from our sin, and then receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior, trusting in his finished work on the cross and allowing his spirit to do a deep work in us to make us more like Jesus. Back in verse 10, Jesus said, and you are clean, but not every one of you. The you there is plural. So Jesus is referring to the disciples there. He's talking to all of his disciples and he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. Meaning Judas. And he returns to the topic of Judas here in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, verse 9, when he says that he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Judas's defection was predicted hundreds of years earlier, which tells us that it was all a part of God's redemptive plan. This does not come as a surprise to Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples in advance so that when it happens, and this isn't the first time he's told them something in advance, but he wants them to be absolutely sure that they know who he is. That they would believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the sacrificial lamb. And then he reminds them of their mission 
He wants them to know that those who receive the message carried by them receive Christ himself. And those who receive Christ receive the Father. So as you can see, there are a lot of lessons here. In the first 20 verses of, uh, of chapter 13, we've learned that no one is above serving. If Jesus himself came and served and washed his disciples' feet, there is no king, no prince, no president, no CEO. There is no one who is above serving. It takes humility to serve, but it also takes humility to be served. And Peter gives us that example. To humble yourself to receive is, is hard. Even when I first came to faith in Christ, it, it just it was it was like, what do you mean free? Free gift. The free gift of eternal life. I, I want to earn my keep. <laughs> is what, the way I thought. I, I don't want handouts. I don't want help sometimes. And it's, it's just pride. It's just pride. And you have to humble yourself to say, you know what? I can't save myself. I can't even wash my own feet. Jesus, help me. Bathe me. Do whatever you need to do. I receive you. And we've also learned from this text that there is no one beneath being served. You ever wondered how many pairs of feet Jesus washed? Twelve. Twelve. Nowhere in any of the Gospels are we given even the slightest indication that Jesus did not wash Judas's feet. Think about that for a moment. Kind of takes what Jesus did to a whole nother level. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him, and yet he still washed his feet. So, folks, if Jesus could wash, Judas's feet. Is there anyone in your life whose feet you can't wash? The lessons here are numerous, but like I said, I, I think the most important is that we must pattern our lives after Jesus and humbly serve one another. Jesus' focus was on his 12. It doesn't mean we don't serve people outside the church, by no means. But his focus was on those who belonged to him. And so our focus must first and foremost be with one another. How are we serving one another? Are you serving in some capacity? And are you doing it out of a spirit of humility and love? Or are you doing it for some other reason. There are plenty of opportunities here at New Life 
to serve. If you're not serving, um, I'd love to talk with you about it after service, or you can talk to one of the other elders. Um, but this isn't the only place. You should use um, your gifts to serve others, to exercise humility. So I want to challenge you this week to think and to pray about what you've heard here this morning. And I want you to ask God to give you a heart of humility and a heart for service and to ask him to direct you to where he would have you. Can you imagine if, well, we we can. At some point, the disciples stopped bickering. They stopped arguing. And they realized that it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about serving him. So I say Mac Davis was right. It is hard to be humble. But it's not because we're perfect in any way. It's because of what Jesus has done for us um, on the cross. Or, or put it this way, it's hard because it's hard for us to die to self. But praise God, Jesus made it possible through his death and resurrection for us to live a life that's pleasing to him and one that benefits others. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for um, your word to us and just, Lord, how, um, how you have revealed yourself to us in these verses that even though you are the God of the universe, you stepped out of heaven and came to earth not to be served, but to serve. And you gave us an example in which to follow. And Lord, this washing of feet um, that we see here in, in John 13 was just a, a, a small glimpse of how you would serve us by going to the cross. So Lord, I pray that you would help us be humble, be teachable, to have a servant's heart, May you be honored and glorified with our life and may we be a blessing to others even as we are blessed by you. In Jesus' name, amen.